Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and bad martinis for conservatives today. And we want to remind you that you can now get the Three Martini Lunch on your home device, your Alexa, your Google Home. Uh, if you want to be spied on, that's your business. But use it to listen to the Three Martini Lunch as well. And uh, all you have to do is say, Alexa or Google, play the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Don't forget to subscribe at iTunes and give us a nice review if you like us. So, Jim, let's move on to our good martini. And the parade of people not running for the Democratic presidential nomination is getting longer. Michael Bloomberg, the former New York City mayor who we just assumed was running for president when he officially uh, became a Democrat once again last year, has decided he's not going to do it because he's got an even more important uh, objective, and that is removing carbon from our society. Uh, he wrote an editorial at Bloomberg, of course. Uh, they gave him the space for this. And so he says, so uh, as I thought... know somebody there. Yeah, he might. He might. He's probably got some connections. So as I've thought about a possible presidential campaign, the choice before me has become clear. Should I devote the next two years to talking about my ideas and record, knowing that I might never win the Democratic nomination? Or should I spend the next two years doubling down on the work that I'm already leading and funding and that I know can produce real and beneficial results for the country right now? I've come to realize that I'm less interested in talking than doing. And I have concluded that for now, the best way for me to help our country is by rolling up my sleeves and continuing to get work done. One way he's going to do that is to go uh, beyond the Beyond Coal movement. And now it's called Beyond Carbon. He's going to organize and mobilize communities affected by the harmful pollution of coal-fired power plants. He says uh, that they've already closed 285 out of 530 of them, and hopefully in the next 11 years they can get rid of all of them and somehow reduce energy prices at the same time, Jim. That will be quite the magic trick since most of our electricity still comes from coal. So uh, what do you make of Bloomberg not getting into the melee here and him once again uh, devoting his time and endless resources to gun control and ending the fossil fuel industry? You know, Greg, if you thought it was hard to get Americans to give up coal, just think of how hard it's going to be to get Americans to give up carbon. (laughs) And all car... I'm waiting for that one. The next step, we will eliminate all carbon dioxide emissions from all human beings (laughs) in five years. That's our plan. It's called the Ebola Initiative. No. Um, So you could you can interpret this as either a good, bad, or crazy martini. You could kind of say, "Oh my God, it's crazy that you know Michael Bloomberg thought he was going to be president of the United States." Um, you could say it's kind of good news if you're a fan of the Second Amendment uh, or large sodas or, or or dancing in a bar because somewhere along the line Michael Bloomberg turned into the uh, John Lithgow character from Footloose and literally started arresting people and citing uh, bars if they had people dancing in them and didn't have a license for dancing. He is Napoleonic, and that's not just a short joke, although there is that too. Uh, He does have this vast ego. He is the embodiment of the nanny state. Um, But there's so, you know, so on the one hand, you could say, ah, this guy was never going to win the Democratic, you know, nomination. They've already got one billionaire from Manhattan in the Oval Office. The Democrats are not going to be itching at the chance to have another one. Having said that, Michael Bloomberg is one of the few people in the world who could say, I'm going to run for president and, um, uh, let's, let's just say I'm going to start out with a $100 million budget. Um, Schmendrick, look in the uh, petty cash drawer and just take out $100 million. 
Okay, you know, gotta get get it going. And he could make a lot of Democrats' lives miserable if he had chosen to do this. That he could have. It's unlikely. I, I don't think he, he would have had a really tough time building the majority. Um, you'd hear a lot of accusations that he was attempting to buy the nomination, et cetera, et cetera. But really, you know, look. Michael Bloomberg has an enormous amount of money. So the bad news here is that he's going to take that money, use it to run for, you know, help the Democratic candidate, help uh, Democratic candidates down ticket, keep pushing for gun control, keep pushing for, for his various energy and environmental initiatives. Um, and that's a lot. And Republicans and folks on the right should not underestimate that. I also would note, though, that, you know, he's spent a lot of money on various special uh, elections over the years. Um, memorable ones in some uh, recall elections in Colorado. He, whenever he's asked to talk about guns, he tends to articulate the argument in the most uh, repellent and least persuasive ways possible. That basically have a subtext of you blithering ninnies in the sticks, you darn hicks with you. Know, I believe it was in the Colorado referendum. He kept saying, you know, these places don't have paved roads. Um, he has this, you know, the, if Mike Bloomberg did not exist in the embodiment of snotty urban elitism, we would have to invent him. Um, so in that sense, I, you know, I don't think we should overestimate him, but at the same time, there's a lot of money going to be poured into the left side of the aisle and the left's candidates in 2020. And, um, that's probably going to make the task harder in the coming year. Yeah, it certainly could. And, uh, Forbes just came out with their list of billionaires, and I think he's in the top 10, maybe seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there, of literally the richest people in the world. It's Bezos, Gates, Buffett, Carlos Slim, and a couple other people ahead of him. But I mean, he's worth tens of billions of dollars. So he could literally spend money on TV ads from now until election day, and it wouldn't even, wouldn't even feel it. So um, he's also 77 years old, meaning that he would be uh, 78, almost 79 by the time he would uh, hit Election Day of uh, 2020, which means he's right in that wheelhouse of uh, where the Democrats want their nominee to be. Bernie Sanders is already there. Joe Biden, if he ever makes a decision, would be there and uh, and a couple others, too. So um, but Michael Bloomberg resisting the urge to get in. Yeah, he's so old um, that Bernie Sanders doesn't call him a youngster. <laughs> That's how old he is. All right. Let's move on to our first bad martini now. And, Jim, just yesterday we thought we were pretty much rid of Hillary Clinton, but not yet. Uh, She is making her exit even more miserable than before because she's now adding to her very long list of reasons she lost other than, you know, people in uh, states whose electoral votes add up to a majority didn't want her to be president. Uh, Other than that, she's, of course, come up with Jim Comey, uh, Russia, the Electoral College, Women who only listen to their husbands and how they vote. Content farms in Macedonia, and I'm sure I'm forgetting several other things. Uh, But now she's got a new one. Uh, It's a bunch of racists. Uh, As you quote her in the morning jolt today, quote, I was the first person who ran for president without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And I will tell you, it makes a really big difference. And it doesn't just make a difference in Alabama and Georgia. It made a difference in Wisconsin where the best studies that have been done said somewhere between 40,000 and 80,000 people were turned away from the polls because of the color of their skin, because of their age, because of whatever excuse could be made up to stop a fellow American citizen from voting. And as you point out, the Washington Post fact-checker team uh, said this is just a bunch of nonsense. First, the Supreme Court's ruling in 2013 on the Voting Rights Act had no bearing on Wisconsin. 
The University of Wisconsin-Madison study she relied on for her 40,000 estimate says its findings from two counties should not be extrapolated to form statewide conclusions. Her spokesman did not cite any study for the 80,000 estimate, and voter registration in Georgia did not decline between 2012 and 2016. So she gets four Pinocchios for that, Jim, but... uh, you know, it's one of these situations where uh, d- don't go away crazy, Hillary Clinton. Just go away. <laughs> so I wrote about this today, and automatically the responses from the ninnies on Twitter are, why are you so obsessed with her, Jim? You know, move on. I'm like, well, hang on a question. Hang on a second. If, if she's going to come out and offer this completely false explanation, basically arguing that the state of Wisconsin was stolen from her, I think we have an obligation to push back about that. I don't think that's dwelling on the past. I don't think that's being obsessive. Somebody lies. You've got every right to, to call and say, well, actually, no, that's not true. The truth is it's not. The truth is not X. The truth is Y. Uh, we see this same card played whenever you criticize Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Why are you so obsessed with her? Well, when she says the Pentagon budget is $21 trillion, yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm obsessed with people being wrong, you know, just just her darn luck and bad judgment and, you know, lackadaisical attitude towards the facts that gets her in this. And as for Hillary, like, like on the one hand, I don't know how persuasive Hillary Clinton is, even in Democratic circles anymore. But I do know that this is this the universe, nearly universal temptation. Your side never really loses. It's the other side that steals it. We saw this with uh, George W. Bush in Florida. Apparently even John Kerry you know, thought the Diebold machines in Ohio had been hacked. Democrats have gotten really good at convincing themselves that they never really lose the presidential election, that it's always stolen from them in some nefarious, shadowy way. Um, and people went you know, back into the run-up to the 2016 election. Trump, there was some speculation... Some people are saying, oh, Trump's not going to accept the results of the election. He's, you know, he's going to undermine faith in democracy, et cetera, et cetera. After the election, Trump won, and he still was complaining about the popular vote. And he said that, well, I would have won if you hadn't counted all the votes from illegals. There are not millions of votes of illegals. Um, voter fraud does occur. It does occur here and there on a small scale. If you have a 537-vote margin like you did in Florida back in 2000, I would be worried. You don't, no one has found voter fraud in the realm of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of votes in any, in any state or nationwide. It's just not, you know, you know, could it be happening? Again, we need more evidence to prove that. That's, that's not something you can just say is, is happening here. Um, but we give Trump grief when he does this. Hillary should get every bit as much grief for this sort of thing. Um, you might even argue this is, this is a little more damaging because, you know, Trump has a reputation for being a, uh, you know, a little fast and loose with the facts, shall we say. Hillary, I think, is, you know, every bit is the notorious liar. But uh, again, when this comes out, this is basically arguing that our elections are illegitimate and it needs to be stamped out when it happens. Um, I don't think Hillary Clinton takes advice from anyone anymore, but somebody would be good if somebody went over to her and said, you know, you really shouldn't make those arguments. You lost. You should accept it. You should stop blaming vast right wing conspiracies, although I guess you can say it's coming up on, God, you know, we're coming up on 30 years of that, Greg. Yeah, getting close, getting close. And she was in Selma for the anniversary over the weekend and said that Stacey Abrams should be governor of Georgia right now. But, you know, she lost. Uh, And Jim, I believe it was from mid-October of 2016 till November 8th that Hillary Clinton was so concerned about Donald Trump not accepting the results of the presidential election. And every day since then, somebody's had a problem with the results, but it's not Donald Trump. Fair point. (laughs) Fair point. All right, let's go on to our final bad martini now. Uh, This is from the Washington Examiner, but a lot of folks are talking about this today. The federal deficit for fiscal year 2019 ballooned 77%. 
77% in the first four months compared to the previous year. The federal deficit ran $310 billion in the first four months of this budgetary year, the Treasury Department said Tuesday. Tax revenue fell slightly by $19 billion, or close to 2%, while federal spending grew by close to 9% from the same period the year before. Spending rose despite a partial government shutdown that took place during two of those months. Shutdowns typically delay payments, though the cost to stop and then restart certain government activities sometimes costs more than continuing those operations. Federal deficits have come under increased scrutiny following criticism from Democrats of the 2017 tax law. The Trump administration asserts that the tax cuts will pay for themselves by added economic activity and taxable income, while Democrats argue the tax cuts will expand the federal deficit and increase the national debt. As a result. So, Jim, as we've always talked about, there's always one party that hates deficits, and it's the party that's not in power. Uh, the Republicans didn't seem to care leading up to 2006. Uh, then, in the first two years of the Obama administration, they went nuts, and we got trillion dollar deficits, and we got the Tea Party. And then Republicans gained more and more control in Washington, and now we're back up to here. And now the Democrats who want to have Medicare for all and spend $32 trillion over 10 years or maybe over 90 with the Green New Deal are having the vapors. So uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, so when the deficit is bad, when you have years where you know, it goes to a trillion dollars and then, you know, reaches uh, those really astronomical, wow, how are we spending so much money numbers? Um, usually reflects a couple of factors. I mean, you know, what we, we like to point to conservatives really enjoyed pointing out the trillion dollar deficits in the first two years of the Obama administration. But it's worth noting that was, you know, the, the heights or the lows or the depths that we know it was the worst possible years of the Great Recession. Uh, tax revenues were significantly lower than, uh, than the government had anticipated because, lo and behold, lots of people laid off of work. But suddenly they're not paying income taxes. Uh, businesses have less money coming in. They're shutting down plants, shutting down stores. When the economy slows, tax revenues go down. So they say, well, we'll spend more money on the stimulus. That will that will stir up the economy and that'll improve tax revenues. Uh, you know, economists can debate that, but generally it was a long, slow, sluggish process of recovery. Um, wars cost a lot of money, uh, but by and large, the amount of money we're spending on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year level in Iraq and Afghanistan are way lower than they were in the Bush years. So you can't point to that as a giant expenditure that's driving up these numbers. Um, and, you know, all... All things considered, the, you know, did we increase spending? Yeah, we do that every year. Uh, did we reduce revenues through the tax cuts? Yeah, uh, that's going to happen when you reduce the tax revenues. As you mentioned, the expectation was, well, we're going to have so much economic growth, uh, it'll make up for it. That was always an unlikely scenario. Republicans were always a little too optimistic, but that's kind of par for the course in this sort of thing. But here's what should really worry us. You and I have pointed out on this podcast many times. Right now, the, econ- the economy's been doing pretty well. It was doing, you know, there's this slow, sluggish, and then slowly improving improvement uh, over the latter half of the Obama years. Trump gets in, the market takes off, tax cuts pass. And by and large, we've had nice around 3% growth. There was recently a 2.9% in the last quarter. Um, people, you know, the Trump administration prefers, oh, if you round up, it's 3.1. You know, okay. the economy's doing pretty darn well. If the economy is doing pretty darn well, you'd expect our tax revenues to be doing nicely. And I think most of these months, all these times we've had these, these you know, skyrocketing deficits, most years our tax revenue is higher than the previous year, and we keep setting new records. So it's not like we're not getting plenty of tax revenue. We have a spending problem. We're spending a heck of a lot of money. Um, and what should really you know, frighten us about these numbers, Greg, is the idea that if these are what the numbers are when the economy is doing well, God forbid we get a recession later this year. 
20, uh, 20, in 2020, 2021, some point with the current level of spending, current level of tax revenue, and an economic slowdown, we, we could go from having trillion-dollar-a-year deficits to maybe trillion and a quarter, trillion and a half. God knows how bad it'll be. So it's one of those things, like, we're, we have really bad deficits in good situations. What happens when things don't look so good? That's an excellent point. And the interest rates are ticking up, which means the payment on the interest on the debt is a bigger part of the budget. So uh, it just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. And it's it's everybody's fault over the past number of decades here of how we got here. But uh, it's getting worse. And uh, our kids are going to have a lot of fun with that bill. There was a time Republicans talked about deficits in the debt, particularly Tea Party days. Um, 20, 2012, Romney and Ryan were running on this about as seriously and about as detailed a plan, entitlement reform, the whole shebang, as anybody had run in the last 30 years. And America said, no, we like the other guy. We like Obama, who's kind of ignored this stuff and said, we don't have to worry about it. And, you know, we just need to raise taxes on the rich a little bit. Everything's going to be fine. 2016 rolls around. We, you know, there are, of the 17 candidates, 15 were proposing some version of entitlement reform. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's driving the debt. That's really what's driving our spending. We call it non-discretionary spending because we have no discretion over it. There's a little vocabulary lesson <laughs> for the day, Greg. Yes. Um, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. This is stuff we, we have to pay for because we've said we're going to. If you've paid into Social Security, you're expecting to get your Social Security checks throughout your retirement until you die. Uh, uh, survivors, benefits, the, the whole nine yards. Discretionary spending is a surprisingly small amount of the budget. Uh, and you know, surveys have shown, you ask people about the budget, they vastly overestimate how much they think defense spending is. They have this crazy idea that foreign aid is something like you know, 10%, 15%, no, no, less than 1%. Um, you can't, it's not going to take a little bit of tweaking uh, to resolve our, our spending issues. It's going to take something much bigger. The problem is, and I, I used to you know, beat the drum on this, it's all throughout the weed agency. Every chapter begins with a, a recording of what the debt and deficit are for that year. Americans have decided they don't care. And I, I used to be angry at Republicans for not emphasizing this more. I Now there's a certain amount of logic. How much effort and energy and, and rhetoric and time uh, do you spend trying to drag the country, kicking and screaming towards a solution it clearly does not want to pursue? So we're going to have something worse. You can follow the viewpoints of my colleague, Kevin Williamson, and say, the end is near and it's going to be awesome. Um, I like his idea. <laughs> I like his vision. I'm not, I'm not so sure it's going to be awesome. Uh, I think actually it could be much, much worse, but we, we've decided as a people, Greg, I don't know about you. I remember reading about this stuff when I was a kid, uh, back during the Reagan administration, we, we knew the baby boomers were going to retire. We knew the generation X was smaller and had fewer workers kicking into the system to support all those retirees. We've had this problem in a giant flashing neon sign and we never chose to deal with it. So we have no one to blame when it gets here question is, when does it get here and when does it become unsustainable? As long as banks and other institutions are willing to keep loaning to the United States government, keep willing to buy treasury debt, we can keep going on. But the day it doesn't look like such a safe investment, that's when reality hits it. God knows, you know, it's like we're hitting a brick wall at 55 miles an hour or faster. Wow. Happy Friday, everybody. (laughs) You beat me to it. Actually, it is my Friday. I'm going to be off the next two days. So uh, Greg Knapp uh, will be sitting in for me. So, Jim, you don't have to learn a new name. That's helpful. Uh, That's good. I've only because I've only called Cam Greg a few times. I've only called Hugh Greg a few times. (laughs) I'm talking to someone on the phone. I just my default setting is Greg. Excellent. Happy to earn that spot in your life. Jim, have a good couple of days. I'll talk to you again on Monday. 
See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Join Jim and Greg Knapp Thursday and Friday. I'll be back with you on Monday for the Three Martini Lunch.